Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. The United States has opened its embassy in Jerusalem, and national issues keep surfacing in local races. We talk about what's happening politically and discuss the intersection of race, class, and education with Dr. Wendy Osefo. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. And thank you so much to everyone who has stepped up to be part of our membership drive. Today, we want to share with you part of what we do for our patrons. At the $25 a month level, we're offering the nightly nuance Mondays through Thursdays. You get a seven to 10 minute podcast from one of us talking about a story that either developed during that day or something we couldn't get into the main podcast. So if you'd like a sample of that, stay past the credits today and you will hear a brief nightly nuance that I did on what's happening with the militarization of the South China Sea. And we are finally ready to reveal the Pansu Politics swag coming your way during the membership drive. So we have... Stickers and magnets for anyone becoming a new subscriber or upscribing under the $10 level. And over the $10 level, you're getting the most adorable earbud cases on planet Earth emblazoned with pantsuit politics imagery. So we are so excited. If you upscribe or become a new subscriber over the $10 level, you'll get the earbud cases and everyone else will be getting the pantsuit politics magnet and sticker. So there's lots of good things coming your way. Get excited, everybody. I like the word upscribe, Sarah. Yeah, I just made that up. Is it a word? I think it's a good one. I don't know, but I I understand what you mean. And we appreciate everyone who's doing it. 
it's a big day, and this is a hard story for us to talk about because we are recording on Monday, and today, as we are recording, the United States is opening its embassy in Jerusalem. So we know that more will develop before the show airs tomorrow, but there is a lot to talk about already. This is 70 years after Israel announced its independence, so there are already lots of activities on both the Israeli and Palestinian side, but either in protest or celebration. And so the embassy moving from Tel Aviv, although I understand they're going to keep the embassy open. I think he, what I listened to this morning on NPR is that the ambassador often commutes between the two locations, but instead of working from a hotel room, they'll have an official building and office. But this really isn't about the pragmatic realities of the work environment for the embassy or its employees. Um, this is about the symbolism and the symbolis- the symbolic move of the embassy from Tel Aviv. And it is a very big deal because it's happening at a time when our president has really said to Israeli's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, what would you like? The United States will deliver it. Mm-hmm. You'd like us out of the JCPOA? We'll do that. You'd like us to stop providing funds to the United Nations for Palestinian refugees? Cool. We'll cut that funding off. You'd like the embassy in Jerusalem as a recognition of Jerusalem as the capital? Okay, we'll do that. And this is happening when both President Trump and Netanyahu are facing allegations of corruption at home. Netanyahu seems very close to an indictment, a criminal indictment in connection with a bribery scheme. And just like President Trump, Netanyahu is in Israel talking about witch hunts and fake news. And the two of them seem to have decided that their best bets with each other, um, their best bets geopolitically and domestically are to to go all in together. I was reading a piece about Sean Hannity and Donald Trump's relationship. Follow me here. I promise this is related to Israel. And they were talking about Sean Hannity in particular and why his this this um, philosophy he brings to life appeals to Trump, which is they said he is he gives tactical advice versus strategic advice. And I thought, oh my gosh, I never thought about the difference between tactical and strategic. And I think it is such a good way to view the Trump administration and Donald Trump himself, and particularly this decision with moving the embassy to Jerusalem, which is these are tactical decisions. This is great. Somebody I like wants this. This this is an alignment with with someone I like. This fulfills my campaign promise. It's all tactical. It's all so short-sighted. It's what gives me the next PR cycle success. What's my next PR talking point as opposed to what is the strategic vision? Because these decisions have made an already volatile area of the world even more volatile. The protests, growing protests on the Palestinian side in Gaza are worse and worse. Over two dozen Palestinian protesters were killed over the weekend by Israeli soldiers. So this is it is just throwing gasoline on a fire that was already burning. And to embolden a side that has been looking for the opportunity, I think, to to push its to push its strategic vision, which, hey, Israel is a sovereign nation with the right to, produce, to push its prospects and its priorities, but to not have a strategic outlook for how this all these decisions upset this area of the world and disrupt very delicate balances of power 
to me, is so indicative of the problem with the Trump administration to begin with, which is this tactical versus strategic outlook. And, you know, in some ways, that characterization is probably appropriate when you think about the way Western nations have been involved in the Middle East for a very long time. Absolutely. Well, we talked on Friday about Iran. And in the primer that I put together, we talked about how Iran's history is so complicated by colonialism and by religious differences and different visions for what type of society should exist and how Iran's leadership, whether it's more toward modernization or more toward a very extreme view of faith, has has involved really taking from people to consolidate power. And I think what makes Israel so difficult is that all of the constituencies that have been fighting one another for so long in connection with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have suffered under colonialism, Mm -hmm. have suffered persecution and discrimination based on their religious beliefs and their ethnicities and their skin colors. It's hard. Like you can, I think, fully immerse yourself in the study of the history of that country and completely convince yourself of one perspective. And then you get into the other perspective and you can completely convince yourself of that perspective. Yeah. It is so complicated. And I think Western nations tend to see it as um, dualistic. There are Israelis and Palestinians as though those two groups are homogenous Mm -hmm. and they aren't at all. And part of what we're seeing play out right now is that you have Palestinians in Gaza being encouraged by Hamas, this terrorist organization that does not have the best interest of ordinary citizens at heart, right, pushing them to to march into Israel, knowing that Israeli snipers Mm -hmm. are waiting for them. I mean, this is a. This is a train wreck. And that is not President Trump's fault. This has been at play for years. And independent of President Trump, I think you have Israel escalating its conflict with Iran and Syria. Um, You have Israel kind of on the world stage bumping up its military, although it's certainly not doing that without American assistance. But that's been our policy before the Trump administration, too. But what a big deal this is in the midst of a lot of big deals in a really complicated space. I think he knows that it's it's also a um, sort of show of loyalty and support to the evangelical community. I think he definitely, I don't think it's just about the American Jewish community for him. And I think what is so, you know, frustrating when you see, you know, it's like you said, you can look back and see both sides. It's not difficult. But right now, from where I sit, you know, from my own very limited perspective, you know, Israel is consolidating power. It the the problem with the JCPOA was not in my opinion a fear of Iran's nuclear capability. It was a just total opposition to any legitimacy on Iran's behalf was if Iran was seen as in, as any source of legitimate capacity on the global stage 
That was not going to work for them. That's just not going to work for them. And for, for both valid reasons and reasons I disagree with. And so just, and it's also, I feel like this move removes any sort of validity. You know, when we, when this first came out, I spoke about how I, I would feel so hopeless as a Palestinian. I would feel like this is just, you know, for, for all the lip service, it's basically like you have no leg to stand on. We care not at all about your priorities. Like, there's a lot of talking from the Trump administration about how they still are involved in the peace process. But to do this, I think, would feel very hopeless as a Palestinian to, to, to feel like there's any really forward movement or room for progress with peace. And so it just – to me, the overarching theme here is you had some validity and we will pull whatever levers we can to remove you from the negotiating table and to remove you as a player with priorities that – at least have to be respected. I am raising this as a question, not sharing it as information, because I don't know. A question that I have is how economically driven Israel's conflict with Iran is, hmm. because Iran is so populous mm-hmm. that an Iranian economy booming I wonder if Israel feels that that would be at its own economy's expense. And Israel's economy is doing very well right now. Interesting. And I wonder how much of um, a competitive economic threat Iran would be to Israel in addition to a military threat. I'm not trying to downplay the military side of it. This is just a question that I have because none of these countries have really just had the space to do what they can do. Right. There's always been some kind of conflict and some kind of interference from outside the region, whether it be from the West or from Russia. There's always been something kind of holding everybody back. And I wonder if there is concern about an Iran freed from the most crippling sanctions uh, taking off in a way that would be disastrous for Israel's economy and its and its military, because those things are always related. Right. Well, and I just think that it, when you're talking about there's there's nothing wrong with talking about other motivations. A country is never motivated by one thing. Exactly. To take action. Israel is never motivated just based on security or just based on, um, you know, coming conflict or whatever. I think that it's always more complex than that. And this the problem with tactical movements without a strategic vision is it seems like there's no there's no acceptance of that. There's no acknowledgement that this is more complicated and that when you and when you move with such a single handed focus without any allowance for larger consequences, you have this region that seems increasingly posed for war. It looks like Iran and Israel are heading towards war. I'm not the, I'm not saying anything unique. It's all over the news. It's all over any, you know, pe- different um, experts and journalists take. And so I just think that, that that's what happens when you just move for your own motivations and your own, you know, tactical wins and don't pay attention to the larger consequences. We had a listener ask on Twitter, why is there anything celebratory about moving our embassy to Jerusalem, given what's happening as that occurs? I'm not the best person to speak on behalf of the community of people who are excited about this, but I understand that there have, symbolically on the Israeli side, 
This is about a recognition of independence and a recognition of their freedom to determine themselves and a recognition of a very religiously important location and politically important location. Somewhere along the timeline of history, I think nationalism and religious freedom, as it often does, came to intersect in this country. And so for many people, this is finally seeing them as people, right? And recognizing their ability and and right to determine their own future and the way they want to be recognized on the world stage. I don't want to take anything away from that by recognizing that there are also people for whom this is a very oppressive move and it is the United States throwing all of its chips in on one side of a conflict that cries out for a negotiated resolution. But but that negotiated re- resolution has just been elusive for a very long time. And it is hard to imagine how this ends in a two-state solution or or any other option that is mutually agreeable. Am I saying that in a way that makes sense, Sarah? Absolutely. I agree. On a completely unrelated note, there is something in the United States that I really want to talk about with you, Sarah. This weekend... We did all of our landscaping work. So several candidates stopped by our house because our primary is coming up in Kentucky. And as I am covered in mulch and dirt, uh, this gentleman approaches me. I'm, I'm literally under a tree pulling weeds out. And he comes up and he's so friendly and nice. By far the most impressive candidate who knocked on our door this whole cycle I have a really engaging conversation with this guy. He is running for an executive kind of position. It's one that has no legislation associated with it. This is truly like I want to come do the people's business on a day-to-day basis. And we're talking about how to do that and what he cares about. And he brings up things that I've never thought about that I think are so smart. As a citizen, I interact directly with the office that he's seeking and he's saying things that make a lot of sense. And I'm just I'm really impressed, which is not I mean, honestly, just not a thing I say very often. I don't mean to sound critical or not kind, but, (laughs) you know, I'm just I'm not usually blown away by candidates for local office who come visit us. I always appreciate them. I thank them for running. But I'm not usually blown away. And I really was with this guy. And and I also am impressed with how he handles the fact that I'm covered in dirt and he's apologetic about interrupting us. And he's just very personable and great. So he leaves me his stuff and goes away. And his stuff stays outside under the tree until we kind of clean up everything and bring it in for the day. So we come inside and I read the first page of his little flyer. And I'm like, yes, this is exactly who I talked to. I'm really excited. And I turn it over. And in really big letters, it says 100% pro-life, pro-Second Amendment, NRA member. And my heart sinks a little bit, not because I am surprised that a candidate in a Republican primary has those positions, but because I've just talked to this person who I think is focused on all the right things. And here he is in his materials highlighting things that are completely unrelated to the office he's seeking in a way that feels to me like it's very representative of what's going on in the United States right now. 
And it hit me really hard. And I talked to Chad for a long time about it. And I'm going to reach out to this person to kind of discuss this with him because I think we could have a really interesting conversation about it. I don't want to shame him or blame him. This is not unique. I'm sure he is doing this on good advice. It says a lot more about our area than it does about him as an individual. But it made me think, I really want to talk to Sarah about this because I don't vote in Democratic primaries, so I don't know what your primary kind of campaign literature looks like. I'm interested in that. And I also do want to talk about what it means for us that these giant national polarizing issues are the litmus test for really operational local races. When I knocked on doors, I had a lot of experiences along this line. What's interesting for me is that my my literature, of course, did not have that kind of thing because it was a nonpartisan race. I don't see that a lot, even in our um, partisan races. Um, you see some language, fiscal responsibility, um, equality, justice, stuff like that. But there was actually a very interesting experience for me a few years ago. We had a candidate running for our state senate. And they don't that we just don't usually have this even in our ads for the, our truly local offices. And he did an ad talking about Obama liberals. And I was furious because I'm a local. I was at the time working for the charity league and I had raised a ton of money for the organization. This guy was the executive director of. And I went on Facebook and I was like, this Obama liberal raised a lot of money for you. And I'm insulted by your commercial. Like, don't bring that. Usually you don't see a lot of that in my town anyway, because I think people see it as um, conflict driven and just don't enjoy it. But you know, when I was knocking on doors so often, people, they wanted to know. They wanted to be able to pigeonhole me. They wanted to know um, if I was a Democrat, if I was a Republican, well, where do you stand on this? Even though it didn't have anything to do with being a city commissioner. I mean, I remember one of my sort of two worst experiences. The one time I got my husband out knocking doors with me, he encountered somebody that was like, well, I would never vote for somebody that would kill babies. And he was like, oh my God, I'm never doing this with you again. <laughs> and then I had another who was like, I would never vote for a Democrat. You kill babies. That that lovely sentiment had, had that too. So people, I think it's not just the candidates that want to use these national issues to pigeonhole people, but the people you knock on doors do it too. And I think it's because something we talk about a lot on the podcast, which is People want to treat politicians like products, like products, and they want the quick, easy um, shortcut, the checklist to figure out who you are and where they support you instead of actually taking the time to experience you as a human being and see if your values align. That's a harder, more vulnerable task that people do not want to engage in. They, a lot of people anyway, and they just want the shortcut. They want the pro-life NRA whatever the shortcut is to figure out who you are to make sure that they can rest easy in their support for you. And that's why I'm not mad at this guy, because I understand that that that's the pressure we've put on him. Like I said, this is more about us than about him. Right. I don't know how to change that. I don't know how to change our understanding of politics so that people could say it doesn't matter where he stands on guns. It matters where he stands on the infrastructure that we use to get our driver's licenses. You know what I mean? This Mm -hmm. is a this is an important question. And so I'm now sitting here saying I'm really frustrated to see this, but I should still vote for this person because he will execute this office in a way that I think is really responsible. It's just it's really hard to think your way through this, right? Mm-hmm. How do we get out of this mindset of a person has to align with me on these key issues 
to be our county's what dog catcher, right? You know, I and and I think it gets back to our discussion about hiring people versus buying them, because when you hire somebody, you aren't asking fundamentally, do I think this person is amazing by every measurement that's important to me. You're saying, here are the things I need a person to do. Is this the right person to do them? And I think that is even more fraught politically because there is an overarching ethical component. Will this person be a good steward of taxpayer dollars? Will this person be fundamentally honest? You know, when I read pieces like Evan Osnos has right now about Trump versus the deep state and how a lot of our administrative agencies have stopped using email as a communication tool so that they can't be as responsive to FOIA requests, Mm. that is an overarching ethical component. But that's a very different question than are you pro-life and pro-gun? Yep. And I don't know how we make our way through this, but it felt important to me this weekend as I was waiting. So one of our listeners sent us an interview with Liliana Mason. She has a new book, Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity, that I can't wait to read. And I think it just I think everything she talks about, the the way we have layered all these these different parts of our identity off party affiliation, whether it's race or religion, gender, it's all, we've all, we've melded them with our party affiliation. And so what people are really wanting with these, like I said, like treating the politicians like a product where they're just wanting these shortcuts to, are you with me or are you against me? Right. That's what that pro-life, the pro-gun, all the thing, are you with me or are you against me? And until I think we can, decide that we're in it together um, and work on that as a community, as a country, which is obviously what we hope to do on this podcast, then, I mean, you're still going to, you're going to have local offices and local politicians are going to feel forced to do this kind of thing, I think. Well, in that spirit, we will compliment people not of our party before moving on to our main topic for the day. So I wanted to compliment Mitt Romney Pastor Robert Jeffries, who have said some really offensive, religiously bigoted things, was chosen to lead the opening prayer at the embassy opening in Jerusalem. And Mitt Romney tweeted, Robert Jeffries says, you can't be saved by being a Jew and Mormonism is heresy from the pit of hell. He said the same about Islam. Such a religious bigot should not be giving the prayer that opens the United States embassy in Jerusalem. So thank you, for, thank you, Mitt Romney, for standing up against religious bigotry. I do not know why this man was chosen and given a stage by our government, but whatever. I want to compliment Senator Dianne Feinstein, who pops up frequently for me in this segment, in connection with the Genal Haspel hearings. And the reason I wanted to talk about Dianne Feinstein again is because I do not believe in any way that her unwillingness to support Gina Haspel's confirmation has anything to do with President Trump. She has persistently for years now been trying to open an important conversation about torture. Mm. She has done incredibly hard work at great personal cost to try to have in the public eye enough information about what our government has done for us to all discuss whether we should be doing this or not. And I think that she has has kept a tone about that that's appropriate. I think she understands the gravity of that conversation. 
I liked her phrasing about her lack of support for Gina Haspel. You know, she she said, this is not about one person. This is about whether we want to have a continuation of this part of our history or not. She, I think she's doing a good job of not laying all of this at Gina Haspel's feet, but just seeing her symbolically as someone who participated in a chapter of our history that we need to move on from. And I like her consistency and professionalism about that. Next up, we are going to talk with Dr. Wendy Osefo. We're kind of all over the place today, but I'm really excited about this conversation. Dr. Osefo is an accomplished academic researcher focusing on how race and class influence educational opportunities. And she is not just identifying problems, but she is actively involved in some solutions to those problems as well. So we hope you enjoy the conversation. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We are here with Dr. Wendy Osefo. Dr. Osefo, will you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your areas of research? Absolutely. So just a little bit about myself. I'm currently a professor at Johns Hopkins University. I teach in the School of Education. I also double as a political commentator. So I, I you know, circle the major news networks providing commentary on the politics of the day. Um, my background is really rooted in the ways in which um, individuals from what we consider marginalized populations, whether that's race or socioeconomic status, the ways in which they're impacted by policy. And so that's really, you know, if you look at it, you'll think that's a broad description, but it's actually very specific, right? Um, if you look at the policies that are enacted as far as education policies, how, do that, how does that affect, um, you know, communities of color, uh, you know, communities that are second um, generation English speakers, or if you look at political policies. Again, how does that affect communities of color, low socioeconomic uh, uh, status individuals, and just overall people who don't have a seat at the table? So my concern and my overall concern is ensuring that just because individuals do not have a seat at the table, they're not policies that negatively impact them. As I was reading your background and particularly about your focus right now on the aftermath of Ferguson and Baltimore and um, and Black Lives Matter. And then I read and the 2016 election. And it just hurt my heart that a U.S. presidential election belongs in that list. And, and it does belong in that list, right? Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing um, around those events and how they specifically impact education? Absolutely. So when we think about you know, violence, when we think about things that happen, whether, you know, you consider it an uprising or a protest, we often consider that one community that was impacted. So you hear the Baltimore uprising, you think about Baltimore as I'm having this conversation with you, I'm sitting just a few blocks from where the uprising happened. But this has, you know, this reverberates throughout all communities that look like this. So we had the Baltimore uprising, we had Freddie Gray who was in police custody and then he later on passed away. What that imagery has shown to people of color, and I do not speak as though people of color are monolithic, so I don't want to paint this with a broad brush, but the over uh, resilience of individuals of color have found that when Freddie Gray passed away and the way in which he passed away is showed that people of color continue to be attacked in the very country in which they call home. And the individuals who we call for safety and protection, be that the police, actually are one of our biggest agitators. And when you let that sink in, that just puts into context the ways in which we've been seeing imagery that has happened in Waffle House, the police being called on those two uh, African-American men in Starbucks. We continue to see the police basically as a way to say, you know what, black and brown people, you are putting your place. The same thing was true for Ferguson. We saw Mike Brown and his death. 
And whether you believe as though it was justified or not, or whether the police officer was doing his job or not, what we can all agree on as human beings is there was no reason why his body laid uncovered in the hot sun for hours. That imagery showed that black people are nothing more than roadkill. Because the same way you see animals left on the street after they've been run over by a car, we saw this man in his own neighborhood laying on the street with blood coming out of his body. And it wasn't until the residents kept on complaining and screaming that they finally put a blanket over him and still he was on the ground for hours. So now let's circle that back to the 2016 presidential election. Before Donald Trump was elected, he made comments and did things that spoke against black and brown communities. This is the same president that called for the death penalty for six people of color in the Central Park Five, right? And he said that these individuals were actually guilty of rape when we have DNA evidence that proves that they were not. But he still called for their you know, for them to be held with the death penalty even up until 2013. This is the same president that said, I do not want a black person to count my money. I want someone with a yarmulke to count my money. But I don't blame mm. black people because blackness is a lazy trait. So these are things that he said before he was even elected. And I mean, these things are not hearsay because we know for a fact he was actually taken to court for having preferential treatment for white people in his own housing complexes. So you, we hear this and then people still elect him. Okay, that's questionable. That's not only questionable as far as politics, but that's questionable as far as the moral fiber within our country and the ways in which we look at other citizens of this country to say, no, he did not say anything against me as a white person, but to my black and brown brothers and sisters, how does electing him impact them in the ways in which they feel about themselves? So we have to know what all of this narrative coalesces together and what does it say to people that are not the dominant majority? And that's what my research really looks up on. And if I could just add this last piece, you know, a lot of people have been talking about the recent comments coming out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue against John McCain saying that, you know, hey, why do we care about John McCain? He's about to pass away anyway. And that comment was heart-wrenching. But what was really heart-wrenching was when I saw different political pundits come on TV and said, this for me was the lowest part in this presidency. And I said, oh, that was the lowest part for you. Well, think about black people who are saying, well, the fact he was even elected is the lowest part. Or the comments he made for Charlottesville when he said there were two, there was injustices on both sides. Mm -hmm. What does that say? So we just have to think about how these comments are hitting home to people who continue to feel like they are second class citizens. So I'm really interested in your research, in particular, the impact of policy, like you said, on those marginal populations, because it's just a perspective that I'm limited for better, for worse, because of my own skin color and my own economic background. What do you wish people understood about what it's like? to enter um, educational environments as a marginalized person and the ways in which these policies play out on a day-to-day -day level? Great question. 
So, you know, when, when I talk, I, I also recognize my own privilege in a sense, right? Even though I, I am, you know, Nigerian, even though I am black, I know that my socioeconomic status gives me a different opportunity in life. And I'm also a mother. And right now, how I view the world and the unique thing about motherhood is it changes your lens on life because you tend to have, you see the world through the, the eyes of your children. So when we talk about education, as I as I walk through the halls of my children's school, you know, their private school, it's amazing. The faculty are accessible. It's just a beautiful thing. But I am not jaded and I'll be remiss not to say what those halls look like for children who look just like my two little brown boys, Carter and Cruz, in Baltimore City. The mm -hmm. policies that have been set forth for those children are different simply because the property taxes are lower or simply because we consider them a lost cause. We build jails based on literacy rates of children in kindergarten and first grade. The jails that we build are based on that reading level because we're saying, since you can't read, there's a high propensity that you're not going to get a job. And when you can't get a job, you're going to commit a crime. So we know there is a linkage between one's ability to read and write and their ability to commit a crime. So why then do we think it's okay for certain communities to have poor schools? Here in Baltimore, as I talk to you, Baltimore City Schools were shamed in the public because they did not even have heat in the winter, but they expected mm -hmm. children to come to school. Kids were in classes posting it on social media media with blankets with 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 uh, uh, you know remote heaters coming to school just so they can get an education but then when they drop out of school or when they decide you know what I'm going to devote my life to a life of crime we then question the parents no we have to question ourselves and the policies that we continue to put forth such as making this so teachers with less experience actually teach in these underprivileged communities. Shouldn't it be the other way? Shouldn't we put teachers with the most experience in these communities because we know that they have a higher hill to fight, so to speak, because these kids are, have been systematically disenfranchised for so long? But we put our most inexperienced teachers in these schools. But that also is not just an issue in itself, but that leads to high retention, uh, a high attrition rate. So you have teachers that are only in schools for one year, then they leave. There is no continuity in any regard for these students. So we just have to think about why is it that the people who need us the most are getting the least? Why is it that my children have an assortment of books to choose from in their library and they have an assortment of computers and software to use in their library, but the kids in these city schools still have books that read, and I lie to you not, and I quote, there is this new technology called the internet. Talk to your oh librarian gosh. to get on the internet. Why are those the books in city schools? So all of these things make it so we have to understand that policy impacts not only our children, but it has the ability to impact crime rates. And we have to address that. If you were sitting down to talk with Betsy DeVos right now, what are the two or three specific policies that you would want right out of the gate to address with her? There's two things. 
the first thing I want to address with her is why does she take this job when she knows that she is completely underqualified for it? Mm. And that is not a policy issue. That is a moral issue. Students and parents depend on the Department of Education to effectuate change in their lives and change the trajectory of not only their lives, but generations to come. That's the power of education. How can she, as someone who believes quote unquote, in education, take that position when she knows she has not enough experience to do so. That is one. The second would be, why is she consistently pushing charter schools? We have evidence that shows that yes, charter schools can be good. They can move the needle in the lives of children, but in the community that she comes from, the charter schools that she oversaw are some of the worst schools within her state. So my question then becomes, is the, is the overarching goal to give parents choice or is the overarching goal to ensure that the schools, all schools are equipped to educate students? Because what happens with the charter school movement that some people overlook is that we say, hey, there's these great charter schools, you should go here. But then what that does for and what that did in Betsy DeVos's state is then all of the resources were then funneled to these charter schools. And then the resources were no longer funneled to the traditional public schools. That is the problem. The problem is charter schools are not private schools. They are public schools. So in some states, the funds that fund charter schools and traditional public schools come out of the same pot. But since charter schools are seen as sexier, more attractive, we then take a, a disproportionate amount of the money and give it to these charter schools. But we have students in the traditional public schools who still don't have books, who still have teachers that are grossly underpaid. So where is the fairness and where is the equity in all of this? So that would be the biggest policy I want her to address is just because you give parents the choice to choose between a charter school and a traditional school, that should not alienate those parents who don't have the resources to take their kids to this charter school that in a school that continues to underperform for their children. That is not fair. So if you were to replace Betsy DeVos, which policies would you direct your attention towards? I, I and, and this may seem very controversial, but I believe that our teachers, our K through 12 teachers are the most unappreciated individuals on this earth. I mm -hmm. say this as a professor at a higher in, you know, institution. Professors sometimes get over six figures and that is great. We work for it, we got PhDs, that's amazing. But none of us could have become professors if we did not get a K through 12 education. None of us could have become medical professionals if we did not get a K through 12 education and none of us could have become lawyers. It is sickening that people who get paid the most all went through the same requirements of having a K through 12 education. But those educators who serve as the bedrock of our understanding and those educators who ignited our passion to say, you know what, I want to get a graduate degree are not compensated fairly. I think we should compensate our educators in K through 12 education 
equitably. Right now, it is not fair. Some of our educators have to have two or three additional jobs just to make ends meet for their families. This is the greatest job in America is to be a teacher. And I think that we are not doing our due justice by ensuring that these teachers are receiving a living wage. And that's not fair. So that would actually be the first thing I tackle because that has a trickle down effect. Because if you have teachers who are paid, who are compensated fairly, the ways in which they come to work, the ways in which they continue to educate our children will completely change. Second, Thing that I think I would do in tandem with compensating educators is saying that it does not matter what your property tax is, all students should receive the same quality of education. Mm-hmm. Period.com. That is what it is. We collect the taxes and we divvy it up fairly between school districts. I do not care if your zip code is 90210 or your zip code is 20723 as in Baltimore City. You need to receive the same education as someone who lives in Beverly Hills. Well, that's so interesting you brought up teachers. We had a listener email us, Shannon, who said part of what beyond just the underpaid and overworked, which is a huge issue that you spoke to, is she sees a a big cycle that's starting with administrators who only teach for two to three years and then go into administration with really not the proper experience in the classroom to to enact the policies that will really have an impact. What's your opinion on that, sort of the experience needed by school administrators? I I, I agree with that. And I agree with that because then I think that there is this, and, and this all starts at a root cause, right? There's this funneling out of teachers that happen, whether people leave because they're not getting paid, they're unhappy with their job, or they just go to another district. But what mm-hmm. that leads to is individuals who are in these administrative roles are not equipped to be in these roles. And right. we continue to see that, especially in these schools that serve marginalized populations. And then another thing that comes with that is you have individuals who, who, who in a sense don't necessarily want to be charged with the task of leading a school that is underperforming. And so you end up passing up a lot of the qualified educators and then whoever will take that job is not as educated, not, not necessarily as educated, but not as experienced as they mm-hmm. should be to take that role. So it's a delicate dance that we're doing here. I, you know, people often say our, 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 our school system needs to be repaired. We need to make pivots. No, our school system is broken. We need to start over. All of this, it, 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 it all feeds into each other. And the only way we're going to change the lives of children is to show them through the choices we make through policy, through the choices we make through the individuals who we allow to come through those doors and educate our children, that they matter. Right now, these students do not think they matter. You have individuals who really talk down to students, like these horror stories from students, you will start to realize why a lot of them don't even want to go to school. And that needs to change. When you say that we need to start over with our school system, I would love to know what values you think form the core of that starting over, because I agree with you about the unbelievable inequity in the way we fund schools. I worry about the way we measure schools. My husband and I just had a long conversation about end-of-year testing. My first grader is coming home every day talking about end-of-year testing. She's not even taking tests, but but it's such a focus in her building that it's it's kind of spilled onto her thinking, which I think is crazy. 
And I, I guess I would just love to know from you, how, how could we start over? What, what would we value initially to build from? So I think that what has to be at the, at the core of what we do as, you know, a, a country and a society has to be the overarching goal of community. That may sound so, so basic. No, I love but it. What, <laughs> I love that. But, but what I mean by that is, you know, there's this whole notion of, and there's research done around what I call community schools, where everyone within that community is held accountable for the ch- for the children. And so, so, so this is really interesting to me because you have Johns Hopkins University where I teach. It's one of the most renowned higher education institutions in the world, but it's in Baltimore City. How can we take the resources from Johns Hopkins and lend that to the school system? And you see this not just in Baltimore, you see this in a lot of inner cities because to be quite honest with you, the taxes are lower. So you see a lot of the best, you know, higher higher education institutions in inner cities. But I think it's incumbent upon everyone to have a role in child learning and to be able to share their resources in child learning. So what I would say as far as the core values and principles is that sense of community where everyone is being held accountable for the child. And also that sense of not just excellence as far as students, but also teachers. I feel as though teachers sometimes are given, are not necessarily, and I know that it's hard for them to go into the classroom and teach every day when they are underpaid, but in the same token, the same way we get rid of underperforming schools, we also have to get rid of underperforming teachers. Their job is too vital. Their job is too vital for just any teacher to become a teacher. I see it all the time. I don't know if you guys can relate to this. I remember my senior year of college, it was individuals. I'll say, what are you guys doing after college? Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll just, you know, become a teacher. It, it almost seems like it's the default. If you don't have your stuff together, you can become a teacher. And that could no longer be the rubric in which we allow individuals to enter our school systems. So I just believe that we have to have a, sex, a sense of excellence, not just for our students, but also for our teachers. And we also have to come into this with a sense of community and start rebuilding. And that whole notion about taxpayer, you know, you know taxes should determine the quality of the school should really be thrown out the window. That's just completely unfair. I think it's really important for educators to know the impact that politics has on education. Mm -hmm. I know that when I walked into the classroom the day after the 2016 election, I teach graduate students and it just seemed gloomy. And I had an entire lesson plan, but I stopped and I said, what do you guys want to talk about? And the students said, I want to talk about the election and the way it's impacted me. And I think that it's incumbent upon educators to know at all grade levels that students with the advent of social media and technology are not living in a bubble anymore. They are aware of what's going on in our political climate. And so you can't just walk into a classroom and say, you know what? We have a chemistry test today and we're going to we're going to take that test. You have to, as an educator, understand that you are a sense of home 
to your students. And you have to be able to speak to their needs. And the way that the political realm is right now, and the way that politics is infused into everyone's lives as it is today, you have to be aware of how this makes all of your students feel. And it's not just the students who are against it, but also the students who may be for it. I think that this is a good time for us to have healthy conversations and for it to be a teaching moment amongst all of us. So I just want to make sure that that the educators and administrators are aware that there has to be conversations around this. And that's part of the reason I started the 1954 Equity Project. I remember being an educator and walking into a classroom one day and I had all of the students of color, not at Johns Hopkins, at a different university, were waiting for me outside of my classroom door. And I said, why are you guys here? And they said, Dylan Roof walked into a church and killed black parishioners that looked just like me. And this university did not send out one email addressing that. How do you think that makes us feel that someone was killed because they have the same skin color as us, but the institution did not respond to it or say anything about it? Mm. So institutions have to be clear that things are happening in society. And for a lot of kids, edu you know, the educational institution is home for them. So we have to provide them that space to grieve, that space to talk, and that space to know that they are safe. So I just want to harp on this as much as I can to say, do not think that your job as an educator is just to teach. No, it's not. It's also to provide comfort, and to also provide understanding. What a great note to end on. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Asefo, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. I truly appreciate you guys. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. 
dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. What's on your mind outside of politics, Sarah? Well, I just wrapped up my community theater premiere this weekend. How did it go? It went amazing. I absolutely loved it. It was so fun. So I was in our local production of Motherhood Out Loud, which is a really amazing play. It's like all these little vignettes about motherhood from, you know, labor and delivery, adoption, surrogacy, um, as your parents age, raising teenagers. It's just so thoughtful and so funny and so emotional. It was kind of hilarious. My friends came up to me after the show. Several nights in a row were like, different groups of friends were like, you said this was going to be funny and I'm emotionally exhausted and now I'm going home to bed. You did a great job. Bye. Like they were just, they were wrecked, man, because there's just a lot in there. And, you know, motherhood is an emotional topic, obviously. But I had so much fun. I didn't screw up. I didn't blank. Um, I missed like one line. So I'm pretty proud of that. And then the best part was um, the premiere night of another community theater member who is directing a play next year came and like scouted me for that play. And that felt like really good. She was like, you're amazing. I want you to try out for this. I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much. It was fun. Everybody, all my girlfriends and my family came. They were so supportive. Every night I had a a big crew there to watch me and support me. And it was so fun getting to know the cast and learning all the little uh, theater phrases and fancy things they do that sometimes make sense to me and sometimes don't. But I had a such such a good time doing it. I'm so glad I did it. That's awesome. Good for you. I got to see Sarah practice her monologue in our hotel rooms when we were traveling for speaking. And I knew it was going to be sensational. So I'm so happy that it was. Oh, and I had people walk out because my monologue was about a woman who's raising a transgender child. And I had people walk out Friday night and Saturday night after my monologue. You're kidding. I love to court controversy. So I felt like it was a compliment in a way. Wow. People walked out over. I, I mean, I heard what you had to say. Like, that makes me really sad. I know. I know. But I think it's just a lot for people, you know. People just don't want to think about 
transgendered individuals existing, much less having a it's it was hard to think why would you walk out because it's really this woman just struggling with like what should I do? What's the right thing for my kid to do here? Um, but yeah, they walked out and um, I, it was really emotional for me, particularly opening night, not them walking out just generally because I'd been thinking about my own boys and if they went through something like this how would I feel? But like the opening night, it just hit me as I was like waiting to go on stage. I just thought about the thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids who struggle with that. And I felt like all this pressure to like represent their struggle well. And cause I knew, you know, for a lot of people, this might be the only way, only time they're sort of confronted, hopefully in an empathetic way to think through somebody's journey like this. And so it's, it's very emotional. I don't know what you think is going to happen in the world if you can't for a second put yourself in someone else's shoes. Mm-hmm. I understand having values and principles that you care deeply about. I don't understand those values and principles prohibiting you from trying to understand another viewpoint. I just don't understand that. I don't either. I don't either. On a totally different note, I have to tell you what my husband did for Mother's Day. Oh. I'm excited. Chad made a video of the girls. He asked them a bunch of questions and then he edited in photographs and music. And it was like this whole montage of them from birth to now. Oh, my god! And then in between, he would say, like, you know, what's your favorite thing about mommy? And what was great is he was talking to Ellen while she was sitting in her little baby swimming pool. And so Ellen would be like... I love mommy so much, and I love this pool. (laughs) It's just really great. Uh, But they came into the bedroom, like, first thing in the morning and all piled into bed with me to watch it. And, I mean, I cried buckets. It was so good and so sweet and thoughtful. And, honestly, for all my sort of dragging on Mother's Day gifts on The Nuance Life, this couldn't have been any better. It was wonderful. Well, what was funny is that I insisted on having my breakfast in bed because as we discussed on The Nuance Life, it's very important to me. And my poor husband had to wake up at 5.30 because he was going to make breakfast at church as well. And he made me the breakfast, came to bring it in. I was like, but where are the boys? And he was like, they're still asleep, Sarah, at 6 a.m. And I was like, but I thought you didn't have to leave till 6.15. I want them to be in here. And he about threw the tray across the room. He was like, what is wrong with you, lady? I just woke up at 5.30 a.m. Get it together. But I did. They, they he put it in the microwave. He went to church. The boys brought it into me. I got my I got my experience. It's you know I just it's I love having them all in bed with me. It's just so fun. That one morning, of course, then Felix is like plucking the blueberries out of my pancakes. He really does not understand breakfast in bed and this whole process. But that's okay. I also, since we're on Mother's Day, I just have to give a shout out to Ali Wong. If you are a fan of comedy or oh I don't know laughter and happiness then you should watch Ali Wong's new Netflix uh, series comedy special called Hard Knock Wife. I laughed so hard, y'all. I had a headache afterwards. I had to get a Kleenex because I was crying. I was laughing so hard. She is a genius. I love her. I wish she was my best friend. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. It's so good. And also maybe we could start a hashtag about how uh, Nicholas is a saint or something like that. <laughs> that that's a lot, Sarah. I know. But- I know. I, but in fairness, I was like woken up. It wasn't like I was like at my most mentally clear state 
or like emotionally stable because I was woken up and was just kind of like, but wait, what's going on? So it just in my defense, I apologize. I, I mean, I think I apologized. <laughs> if I didn't, Nicholas, I'm sorry. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us for another episode. Thank you to Dr. Rosefo for being with us today. Remember to stick around after the credits so that you can hear a little bit of the nightly nuance. We'll be back with you on Wednesday on The Nuanced Life with Kendra from The Lazy Genius talking about food. You're really going to like this episode, I think. And we'll be here on Friday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Support for Pantsuit Politics comes from our listeners. We especially appreciate our executive producers, George Niedermeyer, Tracy Pidoff, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. Our theme music was written and performed by Dante Lima. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. Subscribe and leave a rating and review in the Apple Podcast Player and follow us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic and Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. Hi, everyone. It is Beth here for the May 3rd Nightly Nuance. I watched the full press briefing today from the White House, which was largely about when Sarah Huckabee Sanders and President Trump knew that President Trump had been reimbursing Michael Cohen for payments to Stormy Daniels. But tucked into that conversation was, I think, a pretty important piece of foreign policy news. And I want to talk with you tonight about the South China Sea. So starting with the geography, the South China Sea is part of the Pacific Ocean. It is east of Vietnam, west of the Philippines, east of the Malay Peninsula and Sumatra, all the way up to the Strait of Singapore, north of the Banca Beltung Islands and Borneo. It is 1.4 million square miles through which one third of the world's shipping passes. And it has deltas rich in oil and gas reserves plus hundreds of tiny islands. The South China Sea is also critical to the Southeast Asian food supply. These tiny islands are mostly uninhabited and they are hotly disputed. There is a section of them that is somewhat geographically ambiguous called the Nine Dash Line, over which both China and Taiwan claim broad authority despite protests and an arbitration finding to the contrary. Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, Brunei, Malaysia, and Cambodia also claim parts of the region. So tiny islands in this area have different names. They have become essentially a hotbed of military activity because of all these conflicts. In the 1970s and 1980s, there were several armed conflicts among Southeast Asian countries over these islands. And Trying to negotiate peacefully about them has been a focus, and the United States has had some activity in connection with those discussions. China prefers to have bilateral negotiations because it likes to throw its weight around. Some of the smaller countries in Southeast Asia have pushed for multilateral talks. It's a mess. A particularly important archipelago in this region is called the Spratly Islands. The Spratly Islands are important because they're in critical shipping lanes. It's a very dangerous area, difficult to access, and there are rich fishing and natural resource supplies. Since about 2014, China has been building military installations around the Spratly Islands at a very rapid rate. Port facilities, military buildings, airstrips. It has also been creating new islands, 
just piling sand onto reefs to build islands that will allow it to maintain a greater air and sea presence. This activity is really dangerous ecologically. Several reefs have just been destroyed in the process, and chemical-filled sediments from the construction are washing back out into the water, which can smother marine life and threaten the balance in other reefs. Now, China isn't the only country doing this island building, and I did some reading that said China sort of came late to this party and felt left out, so it is doing it now on a scale much bigger than anybody else. During the Obama years, the United States and China had some tension over this activity, and sometimes the U.S. Navy would send ships over near important parts of the Spratly Islands, and China would get really hot about that. The Trump administration has sent even more ships to patrol the waters as China's activity has ramped up. Um, And the United States case is that we are trying to retain access. We've got over a trillion dollars in trade sailing through these waters under bilateral agreements, and we say that right of access is important to maintain, and so our military is needed to make sure we have that right of access. China, on the other hand, says that it has indisputable sovereignty in this area, and its military activities are needed and justified to defend its own interests uh, and maintain peace and stability in the region. This week, CNBC reported that in the last 30 days, China has quietly installed anti-ship cruise missiles and surface-to-air missile systems in the Spratly Islands. It has also installed military jamming equipment, which disrupts communications and radar systems. So I want to read you a statement from a Pentagon official who spoke to CNBC about this. The Pentagon official said, We have consistently called on China, as well as other claimants, to refrain from further land reclamation, construction of new facilities, and militarization of disputed features and to commit to managing and resolving disputes peacefully with other claimants. The further militarization of outposts will only serve to raise tensions and create greater distrust among claimants. Last week, Philip Davidson, who is a U.S. Navy admiral and who is expected to replace the U.S. Pacific Command Chief, Harry Harris, who is going to be nominated, we think, to be the ambassador to South Korea, testified through written testimony to the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee. And here is part of that testimony about the South China Sea. The only thing lacking are deployed forces. Once occupied, China will be able to extend its influence thousands of miles to the south and project power deep into Oceania. In short, China is now capable of controlling the South China Sea in all scenarios short of war with the United States. Today in a press briefing, a reporter from CNBC asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders about this activity, and she said, We're well aware of China's militarization of the South China Sea. We've raised concerns directly with the Chinese about this, and there will be near-term and long-term consequences. She did not offer further details, but that is some important information. I think that it is being reported widely enough that we can expect further information to come out now, and it is a reminder that the world is incredibly complex and dangerous in ways that we aren't thinking about every day. So I wanted to highlight it tonight, and we'll keep an eye on this story. Hopefully, even this vastly oversimplified context helps us all better understand what that reference was to. And to think a little bit more deeply about the North Korean summit conversations with Russia, 
and the president's strange Twitter and Mar-a-Lago on-again, off-again bromance with Xi Jinping. <laughs> 